Amen. Thank you so much, Matt and Davina and Gareth. Uh, it's wonderful again to have the family with us today visiting. Um, it's really been a joy. Do open your Bibles again, please, to First uh, Corinthians. That's where we're going to begin today, and uh, I'll explain why we're doing this. I wonder, have you finished your Easter chocolate yet? Last weekend, we celebrated Good Friday and Easter Sunday, one of the most significant times in the Christian calendar. The importance of this teaching about the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead, cannot be overstated. It is a doctrine, a truth, on which the faith either stands or falls. Jesus Christ did not defy death. He did not just deny death. He destroyed death. That's what Christians boldly affirm. Therefore, we say, as Christians have done for since time out of mind, on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Now, given how important that is, we can afford to spend a bit more time on the resurrection today, and happily, we're also celebrating new life with Lucy and, of course, Reuben. And the resurrection is all about life. The God who gave life to us, every breath you receive now is a gift from God, also raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And Jesus was the firstborn of many, many brothers and sisters, according to the Bible. Therefore, because he rose, we too may rise in a new body. Mike and Anne, no doubt you have many hopes for your children. We already heard about some of those hopes. And chief among those hopes, you have said, is that they will come to know the Lord Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. They are growing up in a culture that is increasingly hopeless, aren't they? Young people are lost. We can see it, sometimes tragically so. Our culture offers attractive illusions but no substantial hope, and so children and young people are full of anxiety and even despair. They need confidence. Reuben and Lucy need confidence growing up, certainty, assurance. We all do. And it is not to be found in the culture around us. The foundation of Christian confidence is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Let me say it again. The foundation of Christian confidence is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The whole faith stands or falls on it. It really is that vital. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Matt reminded us of this last Sunday night. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, means died, in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are of all people most to be pitied. So if we only got hope in Christ for this life, he says it's pathetic. So it is vital for Christians to keep going back to this foundation, to review it, to see it, to make sure we're standing on it, to see that our faith is not built on sand but on solid rock, and to learn more fully what the resurrection means. 
And there are others here in, uh, with us today who are exploring the Christian faith. And perhaps you just dropped by this morning. Great to have you here. Perhaps you came to the jazz Roots of Jazz event on Friday night, and your interest was piqued. Maybe you think there's more to this than I thought. Or perhaps you've been with us for a while. We're so glad you're here. We love your questions. We need to be challenged as well. And what I want to do today is to show you that Christianity did not emerge from the mists of history like a myth or a legend. I want to show you that it is built on historical evidence. We all need confidence if we're going to build our life on something. And today I want to show you that we can have confidence in three things. Firstly, Jesus was raised from the dead. Secondly, Jesus was who he said he was. And thirdly, Jesus did what he said he'd do. He was raised from the dead. He was who he said he was and he did what he said he would do. Firstly, Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, can you remember a major event in your life that was about 20 years ago? 20 years ago. That was the year, around the year 2002. Can you remember a major event around that time? How much can you remember about really big events in your life? Now, if you're under the age of 20, you're going to have to try something more recent. I can remember an event, 21 years ago, I became a father for the first time. It was the year 2000. Now, there were thousands of things about that year that I have got no recollection of at all. I do remember that we, everyone was afraid that when computers turned from 1999 to 2000, all the planes would drop out of the sky. Anyone remember that? So grateful that didn't happen. I remember that. But I don't remember much else about that year. But if you were to ask me about becoming a father, let me tell you, I can remember it as vividly as if it was last week. Uh, we were under the care of Kingston Hospital. We were not planning this pregnancy. It was a, a gift from God. We hadn't been married that long. As we got through the pregnancy, is such a journey. You learn all this medical information. People tell you all their horror stories. As we got through, they started registering that Melissa's blood pressure was rising and high, and we were anxious about that. And they kept saying, you know, she might get preeclampsia. In the end, she did. We were admitted to hospital at Kingston on a Wednesday morning for her to be induced. And uh, that induction didn't go as planned. We were in, in and out of the hospital. By the way, if, you, if you're um, pregnant, just, just put your fingers in your ears at this moment. Just thought, sorry. Anyway, I'm, I've already started. <laughs> so she was trying to have a baby for 53 hours. And I was going, I couldn't stay overnight. I was coming back and forth from the hospital, worried, sick. And uh, it was endless waiting around, punctuated by painful contractions. And Melissa had some terrible contractions as well. The worry of it, oh my days, the questions, the hopes, the anaesthetist, I can remember her now. I can remember her voice. I didn't realize I could put a needle that far into your spine. Then at 10.30 p.m. on Friday night, after 53 years, they suddenly rushed us into an emergency cesarean section. And I remember even the time because 
I was a YPF leader. I was a leader in the youth work here. And I remember thinking, oh, 10.30, the group will be nearly finished now. All these details, it's 21 years ago. I had to wear theater greens. The room seemed to be full of staff. There were calming voices. Opera music in the background. I was at the uh, head end. They were down at the business end. There was a little curtain in between. Melissa was absolutely exhausted. The tension, and finally, finally after all of it, the little bleating sound of a tiny baby three weeks early. And although it was 21 years ago, I will never forget those events because they changed me forever. They changed our life forever. You won't forget that, will you? See, we remember the big events very clearly. You forget the small stuff. It comes and goes. But life-changing events you do recall. They stay clear. And they are reinforced by multiple retellings to other people over years and years, including other people who were in the same event when you talk about it. Now, scholars agree that 1 Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, is one of the earliest letters that was written in the New Testament. They reckon it was written between about the year 53 and 57. So it was written in the 50s. So that means it was written about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And that was a major life event that none of the people who saw it would ever forget, would they? Look at how Paul sets out the evidence. If you've uh, closed your Bible, do turn it up again to, to 1 Corinthians 15, page 1156. Verse 1 and 2, he gives a reminder. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you so they know it already, but this is a reminder. Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you've taken your stand, by this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. And then verses 3 to 5, he points out some things that he says are of first importance. This is the really important things. What I received, he says in verse 3, I passed on to you as of first importance four things. Christ died. Secondly, Christ was buried. Thirdly, he was raised on the third day. Fourthly, he appeared. So Christ died, was buried, was raised and appeared. He was seen. And then verses 5 to 7 always seem a bit strange to me. He appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Important point there, most of whom are still living, right? For 20 years later, although some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. Okay, why this strange list? A key point is being made. It's about 20 years after Jesus died and rose from death, and most of the witnesses are still alive. You could ask them, These are named eyewitnesses. And in fact, these aren't, this isn't the full list. These aren't the only witnesses. Jesus first appeared to several women. And they are carefully named in the Gospel of Mark. But in the ancient world, women's testimony was not admitted in court. So the women are not mentioned here in this list. By the way, that's a concession to the culture. It's not a denigration of women. Mark carefully names them. The point is... These are official witnesses. 
Look at what this means. These were people who knew Jesus well. They would easily recognize him. They'd spent several years with him. Peter, the 12, these were people who knew Jesus. They couldn't be fooled by an imposter. These were appearances over a range of time. It's not talking about a one-off group hallucination from a bunch of people who found some magic mushrooms. This is taking place over different times and different places over a 40-day period. Jesus spent that time with his disciples. Acts chapter 1 says this, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift the Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. They ate, they drank, they spoke together, they touched him. In other words, this is not a mysterious sighting like the Loch Ness Monster or the Abominable Snowman. They were sustained personal interactions. They were up close and personal. Thomas missed the meeting where Jesus first came to the disciples, which of course is why you should never miss a church meeting. Jesus might show up. And he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, you know, he was stabbed with a spear, I will not believe. And Jesus came to them in a locked room and he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. In other words, the scars are still visible on the body of the risen Jesus. Those wounds yet visible above. We are talking here about eyewitnesses who didn't expect Jesus to rise. They really believed that he had. They were profoundly changed by it and they were prepared to die for it. So we mustn't make a mistake here. This was the single biggest event of their lives and they did not forget. 20 years later, the memories were fresh. Now, one of the main objections to Christian belief is that resurrection is impossible. It couldn't happen. And the early Christians would say, yes, we agree. We weren't expecting it either in this way. But we couldn't deny the evidence. Jesus really rose from the dead. We are faced with evidence of eyewitness testimony. And over the years, many skeptics have honestly examined this evidence with an open mind. And they've concluded that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Legal experts like Frank Morrison, Gilbert West, Edward Clark, and J.N.D. Anderson. Scholars like James Orr, Michael Ramsey, Arnold Lunn, and Wolfhart Pangenberg. Michael Ramsey wrote these words, So utterly new and foreign to the expectations of men was this doctrine that it seems hard to doubt that only historical events could have created it. Jesus really rose from the dead. We can be confident of that. Amen? What does it mean? What does it mean that he rose from the dead? Now, the New Testament makes clear that this resurrection was was much more than just an amazing miracle. It has far-reaching implications. Actually, the resurrection has changed history. It's changed everything. 
The whole of the world's history could be divided into before the resurrection and after the resurrection. The whole of the universe's history, that's, it's cosmic. It, because the resurrection means, second point, Jesus was who he said he was. He was who he said he was. And for this point, we're going to turn back to Acts chapter 2. If you want to go back there, uh, we're in page 1094. Page 1094, Acts chapter 2. And this is the first Christian sermon. The first Christian sermon. And it is itself, it's amazing, because the preacher is none other than a man called Peter. Peter! Just a few weeks before, Peter was so scared to be associated with Jesus that he had denied him vehemently. He swore, I don't know him. But now we find him standing in the public square in Jerusalem of all places, boldly testifying Jesus was the Messiah. And the sermon had a powerful effect. People were deeply challenged and convicted. Over 3,000 joined the church that day. But notice where Peter lands the plane. The resurrection. He makes three points in this sermon about the resurrection. One, you killed him. Two, God raised him. Three, we saw him. Verse 36, therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. In other words, everybody knew Jesus had been killed. Everybody knew. It was the talk of the town. They'd seen the body. They'd seen him die. Professional soldiers had verified it. He was dead. This is not some kind of swoon that he revived from. He was really dead. Secondly, God raised him, verse 32 to 33. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, that's the place of power, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. The Christian teaching about God is that our God is a unity of three persons in one Godhead, a tri-unity, a triune God, a trinity And many people have struggled to get their heads around it. Of course we would struggle to get our heads around it. He's God. We're human. It might be a little bit above our pay grade to fully understand the Trinity. But nevertheless, it says that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and gave him the promised Holy Spirit. So that now through the Spirit, Jesus comes into the whole world. And the Holy Spirit is here now. present sometimes people say uh, that preacher was talking to me so it was uncomfortable did you people even ask did you brief the preacher tell him something about me no no one's ever briefed me but let me tell you the Holy Spirit is the one that's speaking to you because Jesus sent him God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and sent the Spirit through him. So God raised him and we saw him. He says in verse 32, we are all witnesses of it. Now based on those points, you killed him, God raised him, we saw him. Peter draws this theological conclusion. Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. God has made Jesus two things, Lord and Messiah, because of his resurrection. Now, Jesus Christ made many astonishing claims over the course of his short life. 
claims that no ordinary human could get away with. And if you've been coming on Sunday mornings, you'll know from the Gospel of Mark many of these things. We're going to continue with Mark next week, God willing. Here's a few things. Jesus taught with authority that nobody had ever seen before. He did not say, thus says the Lord, which is what everybody else says in the Bible. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. That's a claim to authority. He's saying that his authority to speak about God is not derived. It's original. He demonstrated authority over the natural world. He could heal incurable diseases, calm a furious hurricane, command the sea, multiply food, raise people from the dead. He had authority over the spiritual realm. He could exorcise spirits without needing to call upon God. He asserted the authority to forgive people their sins. Every Jew knew that this was God's prerogative and no one else could do it. He assumed divine rights for himself. He spoke of himself as having existed eternally. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. And he accepted worship from his disciples. Thomas, having put his finger in those nail marks in the side, fell to his knees and said, my Lord and my God. It's all there. Huge claims. But just do a little thought experiment with me for a moment. If Jesus had died at the cross, been buried, and then his body had rotted away in the normal fashion, what would we have made of all those claims? His claims would have died with him. If Jesus really is the eternal Son of God, made flesh, come to earth for us and for our salvation, then he had to rise from the dead. He had to demonstrate that it's impossible for death to keep hold of him. He has to be bigger than death. After all, he predicted that death would not keep a hold on him. He repeatedly told his followers on the third day he would rise. So this is the great test, isn't it? Was Jesus who he said he was? And now they know. The proof is undeniable. So Peter declares in verse 36, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. Two very, very powerful titles. Messiah is God's special appointed king, the one who would bring in a kingdom of justice and peace, prosperity that would last forever. Lord, not just a title, but the name which is above every name. To every Jew, there was only one who could be called Lord. The name that God gave to Moses, Yahweh, was so held with such reverence that people wouldn't even pronounce it. If you hear a rabbi read the Hebrew Bible, they won't read Yahweh. They read Adonai, which means Lord. So much respect. And now they say that Jesus is Lord the incomparable God of Israel who does not share his glory. And the apostles do not hesitate to give Jesus the title Lord in that highest sense. They consistently apply to Jesus passages from the Old Testament that refer to God alone. So, where are we so far? First, Jesus really was raised from the dead. Secondly, Jesus was who he said he was. The Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, the eternal Son of God. And thirdly, finally, 
The resurrection gives us confidence that Jesus did what he said he would do. Now, during lockdown, which still seems to slightly be with us, but thankfully we're getting through it, I remember the, the, the key government message of a couple of years ago, stay at home. We all got used to the sight of delivery vans arriving at all times of day and night, didn't we? And non-stop. The only people who couldn't stay at home, bless them, were drivers. And they were arriving at all times of day and night to bring goods and food and stuff to people. And if a parcel is particularly important, what are you supposed to do to demonstrate that you received it? Sign for it. Or get your finger and squiggle on the screen. Sign for it. It's not enough for a parcel simply to be sent. If a company or a person is sending something valuable, they want to know that it's been received, don't they? Signed for delivery. That it has all gone through, that it's been completed. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's signature on our salvation. God's signing for it. So that we know the payment has been made in full. It's done. Jesus himself taught that this was the purpose of his death. In a famous verse, Mark 10, 45, he said, Even the Son of Man, that's himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. A payment. He paid the ransom. Set the hostages free. So that's what his death was for, a ransom. But to go back to our thought experiment, if Jesus had died on the cross, been buried, and then just decayed like every other person on the planet, how would we know that he'd been successful? How would we know that God had accepted his sacrifice, that we were forgiven, that there was a hope for us? We wouldn't. We need the resurrection to know that God has received the payment for our sins, and he signed off on it. No resurrection, no salvation. And a short but very eloquent summary is found in that verse that Davina read for us, Romans 4.25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now this comes at the end of a chapter explaining how Abraham was justified by faith. And justified means to declare something to be right. If you took an exam, remember exams? Sorry for some of you, exams may be coming very soon. You may be challenged to justify your answer. That means show it was right. And here in this Romans, Paul speaks about being justified by God, which means as far as God is concerned, you are entirely in the right if you're justified. All clear. If a person is justified in your relationship with God, there is not a single cloud in the sky. All blue. Completely in the right. Fully clear. Righteous. How does it happen? Through the resurrection. Notice again, the, the, there's a parallel in that verse. He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. Jesus' death on the cross 
paid for every one of our sins in full. And God raising Jesus from the dead shows that he has signed the deal. It's accepted. It's done. As far as God is concerned now, those who are justified by faith in Jesus are completely in the right. So it's not that Christians are 50% saved by the cross and 50% by the, the resurrection. They're completely integrated. You can't have one of them without the other. The resurrection shows that the cross has saved us and the resurrection is a consequence of the salvation through Jesus' death. His blood saves because he is risen. God has signed for him. Now, remember our theme today is, re- is confidence, a confident life in a hopeless culture. Do you know this confidence, friends? Could you know it? What does it look like? 500 years ago, there was a German monk. He was a miner's son who became a monk. His name was Martin Luther. His faith, even though he was a, a, a monk, was, gave him zero confidence. He was racked with guilt for his sins and his failures. And things just seemed to get worse and worse. He had a terrible conscience. Even his body was affected by it. And he did not love God as a result. He feared God. He even hated him. And then Martin had a breakthrough. And here are his own words as he describes what happened while he was studying Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He said this, In the gospel, the good news, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and he deals justly in punishing the unjust. And my situation was that although I was an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. That is the confidence that the resurrection can give you. Christian friend here, will you enter into it more fully today? Ask God to show you what it means that Jesus, by his resurrection, accepts you 
You're accepted in the beloved. You are welcomed as though you were a, a, one of the family. You are adopted. More loved and valued than you ever dared to believe because Jesus died for your sins and rose for your justification. It is sweet indeed. It is an open door to heaven. And if you're one of those exploring the Christian faith and you just dropped by today, we're so glad you're here. Would you like to taste that? We're running a three-part course called Hope Explored. And we'd love you to come. It's going to be here three evenings. I think we start this week. Come and talk to me on the door afterwards. I'd love to chat to you. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for this Easter time, for uh, the, the things you've brought to our minds and memory, those awful events of Good Friday. How could such a day be called good? And the extraordinary sunlight and warmth and joy of Easter day, when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, literally and bodily. Thank you that you give us such hope. And thank you that you've given us confidence. You raised up witnesses. We've got it in writing. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you signed off your acceptance of our salvation. Grant us faith, we pray. Amen.